Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part, it's completely free, a token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, or simply visit the SportMind Hub by Googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next episode of the podcast series. Today, I have on the show Bright Shining Star and Parmenta. We had such a wide-ranging, deep, funny, and inspiring conversation today, and I certainly came away with my energy cup brimming full. She was just a delight and had so many cool things to talk about. It felt like we could have had a five-parter. Her knowledge, humbleness, energy, interests, and passions, and genuine authenticity come across beautifully in the conversation today. You can see why she has been the success she has been, and not just based on her wins and losses but how she inspires people and finds the value and importance in life and relationships. Anne is a highly respected and experienced field hockey coach who has been leading the Trinity College Bantams in Hartford, Connecticut for numerous years. With a strong commitment to her athlete's development both on and off the field, Anne has become an influential figure in the field hockey community. Under her guidance, the Trinity College field hockey team has achieved significant milestones consistently ranking among the top teams in their conference. Her dedication to the sport and her players has led to numerous wins and high levels of team performance. Throughout her tenure at Trinity College, Parmenta has led the Bantams to multiple conference championships, earning several NCAA tournament appearances. It is evident that Anne's impact on the field hockey program at Trinity College has been profound. Her leadership and passion for the sport have left a lasting mark on the countless student-athletes she has mentored, helping them grow both as players and as individuals. In addition to her coaching responsibilities, Anne has taken on various roles at Trinity College, contributing to the overall development and enrichment of the institution. As a strong advocate for her players, she works tirelessly to ensure they receive the support and opportunities they need to excel both athletically and academically. Her lasting influence and achievements have established her as a respected and accomplished figure in the world of collegiate sports, and in March 2023, she hung up her whistle. On the show today, we talk about her journey from youth athlete 
to field hockey player to legendary coach at Trinity College, where, as mentioned, she has only recently just retired from. From the word go, you understand that coaching was in her DNA, and this was her destiny. She followed her passion and followed her dream. We talk a lot about coaching philosophies, what it takes to get the best out of athletes, and her tips and advice for creating a strong team culture. She shares stories about the deep relationships she has formed over the years and how when it all gets stripped away, this is the most valuable thing in life. She is a great outdoors person, and we end the show with an incredible story from her about her climbs on Mount Everest, how her first climb was fraught with danger and peril and the despair of what happened. On her second climb, she was able to summit and she takes us through all the details of this and the profound moment she came face to face with death. A harrowing and captivating listen and I'm sure you'll be blown away as I was when I was listening to her. So on that note, I'm excited for you to hear this conversation with myself and Anne Parmenta. And Parmenta, welcome to the next episode of the podcast series. Really delighted you're here today. We've had a bit of scheduling back and forward, but I'm really glad we could kind of sit and chat. So um, how are you today? How's how's life in general? What's uh, what, what's going on in your world right now? Yeah, life's life's great. Just got back from a week-long canoe trip down the Green River in Utah. Realtor was in the house yesterday. Photographer's coming Thursday. Got to get the place ready to go on the market because I'm selling my house and moving on to the next adventure. So uh it's a whirlwind of of life right now which is how i live my life anyway (laughs) well yeah we had a bit of an offline chat about your next steps and and you know we're going to unpack that as we go today but listen i always think a good place for us to kick off is uh, maybe to give a very maybe brief introduction to yourself and what you're currently doing you've already teased us with what you're doing but maybe your working progress until the recent uh, recent past um just just a little backstory um i Obviously, I'm a Brit living in the United States, and I, I came here in 1984. Um, I had $500 and two bags and was going to go to grad school for a year. And as my mom says, it's been a very long year, and all these <laughs> almost 40 years later, I'm still here. Love it. Uh, but I came here after teaching for three years in England um, and did a couple of summer camps, you know, in the sports world, coaching field hockey. And, and it was just like being back at college. It was like Mm -hmm. so much fun being with all the other coaches and coaching all day long. And then all the coaches would have these competitive matches of everything um, every night, lots of social. And uh, they said, you should go to grad school. Anne. And I ended up going to grad school and, and finally, you know, after finishing grad school, it was like, what's next. And, Mm -hmm things sort of fell into place um and I got my first coaching job in 1987 and just jumped in with two feet and you know literally my paperwork is sitting on the desk right now to sign my early retirement papers from Trinity wow. um, years later and yeah the next next chapter is to be still fully engaged in the outdoors and field hockey and uh you know, just signed up for the Hartford Marathon in the fall to see if we've got one more of those still in us. So <laughs> there's a lot of activity in the, in the next little while, I think. Incredible. And we're definitely going to unpack parts of this, especially around the mindset of this all. And, you know, you've got an amazing energy and sounds like what you're doing coming up sounds incredible as well. Just want to go back a couple of steps. Um, Firstly, where did you grow up in the UK? And secondly, 
how did hockey, field hockey, become a big part of your life? Yeah. So I I was born in Reading in Berkshire and uh, lived there until uh, we were nine or I was nine. And then my my mum and dad originally are from Scotland. Um, and so we moved down to uh, Ferndown in Dorset, down on the south coast. My dad worked at the time. He got a job with British Aerospace at Hearn. So um, he was a draftsman and uh, was working on projects with them. So we moved to Ferndown and at age 11, you know, my mom knew I was, I wasn't the greatest at school, but I was always running around and climbing trees and playing football with the boys in the street. And she saw a little ad in the newspaper shop for Bournemouth Athletic Club. And so I was 10. They took me to Bournemouth Athletic Club where I I wasn't allowed to join because you had to be 11 to actually join compete but they let me train with them. So I started running when I was nearly, I was 10, because I remember on my 11th birthday, um, I got given a pair of spikes and 70 pence, which was the annual subscription to Bournemouth Athletic Club. That's awesome. I I ran cross country and then I ran eight and 1500 meters. And I, I actually loved the cross country more than the track workouts. And I, and I was okay. I was, you know, I was, you know, I wasn't winning everything. I was winning some, but there were always girls that were better. And right. then when I turned 13 and went to middle school, um, you know, I started to realize, you know, when people are like, what are you going to do when you grow up? You know, I realized that school didn't come very naturally to me, but I just loved PE and I loved all the games and I just loved being physical. And it was the first time we had a specialist PE teacher and I just thought that was the coolest thing at 13 (laughs) to have like a proper PE teacher not just your English teacher who had a whistle in her mouth (laughs) on on the playground so anyway I started realizing that that's what I want to do when I grow up I'm going to be a sports teacher Um, and so that teacher was the one who introduced me to Wimborne um, Hockey Club and suggested that I might go and play you know, for an adult hockey club rather than just a school. And I think that was when I stopped belonging to Bournemouth Athletic Club. Mm-hmm. Um, the team aspect of playing was, was I really loved. And uh, yeah, so I'd ride my bike to Wimborne, six miles, you know, the whole downhill on the way there and uphill <laughs> on the way back kind of story. And uh, I, I would play Saturday and Sunday and every possible time I could. Mm. Um, and I just knew then that, I wanted to be a PE teacher because I could, this is what I was going to be when I grew up, you know, people would ask and um, yeah. So that, that's what all began. Nice. And, and what um, level, cause again, there's not necessarily that important, but you know, some of the greatest coaches didn't reach the highest levels of their sport, but what level did you get to in hockey? Yeah. So, I mean, I played for Dorset, like the juniors first, but I didn't make what would be the first 11. I was on the second 11 and I was just talking about this yesterday, you know, two years I was on the second 11. I was so devastated my second year after learning how it worked. I still didn't make the first 11 mm-hmm. and it took three goes until I was on the first 11. And okay. then I played, I was a West junior reserve again, not quite, it's always not quite making it. And then, so I was a West reserve and then I went to um, PE college in, in Eastbourne in Sussex and uh, to Chelsea Physical Education College. And 
there I made the first year team and then I was on the college's second team and we had six hockey teams and so pretty renowned Mm -hmm. but by the it was like Easter time it was around about now we had done really well and we were playing in the south championships and um, I got called up to the first team and we went from there and we went on and we won the national, we won the the first national club championship in England. Nice. And of course it was all kind of hullabaloo that a PE college won it and that we were professionals and all the club players kicked up such a racket. Anyway, playing on the college first team, uh, we ended up going to Prague in Czechoslovakia to qualify. We won those matches and then we went to Holland where we represented um, England at the European Championships. And we were the youngest team there and we royally got it handed to us. <laughs> but it was a heck of an experience. Um, and while I was playing for college, then I was also playing for Sussex. And then I went on to play for Kent seniors. Um, and I think the year I came here, um, I felt like I could have probably got an East tryout. Okay. Um, and that was the decision. I was 24 at the time mm. and just beginning to get it. Um, and so I always wonder what if I'd stayed in the UK, because obviously I would love to have played for an even higher level. Yeah. Um, but I was just on that cusp of just maybe making it. And then, of course, mm-hmm. when I came here, I played for tons of adult clubs here. And um, it's a very different structure altogether. Sure. So, so mm-hmm. I played representative level field hockey, but never made it to the national team. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But like the what if right at that point where there is, yeah. is, is that kind of famous picture with someone digging for diamonds and they're like that far away and they've turned around. It's like, you yeah. just don't know where that is, but um, yeah. it sounds like your journey has been incredible. What position did you play? Um, I was a forward, always a forward, always going to goal in every sport. I love it to run, to run backwards and defend. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I'm a great, I, 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 pride myself in saying I am now a great coach of defense because I had to learn how to coach good defenders, really great footwork, great anticipation, great patience. Um, And I never was patient. I wanted to go forward at all costs. Mm. So, you know, I think everybody should coach first and then go and play and you'll be a much, much better player um, because you understand you have to have the yin to, learn the yang exactly right? exactly it's so, that kind of 40 year old head and a 20 year old body how do we get, yes. get that right <laughs> yeah i mean yes youth is wasted on the young and uh I, yes i've i've learned to coach defense and i really enjoy coaching defense but i think as a player i just was never patient enough and i always wanted to go in to get the ball so uh okay. every every position on the forward line nice and then just i'll stay with that for a second you, you know maybe highlighting some of your kind of weaknesses in your game now as a coach have you do you you obviously look at it with a different hat on you're going okay you notice that in certain players maybe you notice certain things and are you are you coaching them slightly differently knowing about your mistakes oh yeah absolutely I think you know every coach if you don't that's why I mean I I've been an active I still I consider myself an athlete I have a lot of friends and colleagues who you know they don't compete they don't work out they don't do anything and they don't consider themselves an athlete i i will scrimmage you know last fall i was making up the numbers with my team because we didn't have enough people and love it the you know the older you get obviously i think in my head i can still run with these 21 year olds i can for a while but turning around and doing it three times is another story but you know you become wiser 
and you become smarter. And I think the hardest thing is as a coach for me to coach is youthful exuberance is wonderful, but it's such a waste of energy. And we talked a lot on my team about working smarter, not harder, trying to teach people what that looks like. Right. And, you know, I call them my oh shit moments when I see the ball four passes away from potentially being a threat in our circle and scoring. I see the play developing at an 18 and 19 year old. You just see where you're running. Mm. And the hardest, hardest thing is trying to implant how I see it into an 18 and 19 year old's brain. And I'm sure every sport is the same. It's all about, I see that position. I see somebody else on the field. I can see mm. where the pass is going to go. And, you know, I mean, I obviously love watching soccer and it's, any sport that's developing like that in your sport, the same positioning and like just poising put people to be in the right place at the right time is incredibly difficult to coach. But mm. I think it's really important for young players to watch, but to watch standing next to somebody who sees it differently. Mm. Um, and, you know, when players would be out of the play, they'd all be standing there frustrated that they weren't playing, but those teachable moments and the, you know, the 10,000 hours of watching, you can't cheat 10,000 hours. You, it, it's like, how do you get better? Yep. I totally Run agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So teaching the off ball in every sport, I think is a coach's hardest challenge. Yeah. Well, yeah, just a little statement. I tend to use my players now to reflect that it's, you know, learn offline, but play on the, on the pitch, on the court, actually the real learning probably comes yeah. when you take a step back, when you look at it with the big picture viewpoints. And yes, when, when you're playing, there's a distraction of the ball, of opponents, of, of patterns of play. And actually that's a bit of a bit of a distraction until you can step back and have the experience and knowledge to see that big picture. So I love that method. That, but it's a hard sell to play sometimes, isn't it? Well, I think, and you were probably like me growing up when I did and where I did, we played in the street. We played exactly. every game in the street. And if it was... If it was Wimbledon, we'd be playing tennis. If it was the Olympics, we were running up the straightaway and 50 times around the circle in the cul-de-sac for the marathon. And <laughs> I really think I learned a lot of sports by watching on the television. We had access to being able to watch sports. And then we went out as kids and did it. And I think now in the American culture and maybe where you are, there's so much adult supervised and coached sessions that my biggest um, frustration sometimes is players are so used to being coached by adults. Mm -hmm. They themselves haven't gone out and just put a lot of time into just playing all kinds of games because the concept in one game completely translates to another. Totally. 100%. So how do you address that? I, I've tried a few different methods, but I'm keen to extract some of your knowledge. How do you get I that mean, balance? Trying to encourage my players at all levels, play more pickup, just go out yourselves without, you know, in the off season, get a few of you to go out and just, just tool around with the ball. No, don't sign up for a club session. Mm. Um, just play and, and put in, Put in time where adults aren't telling you what to do. You've you've got to figure it out because, you know, in a game, I we always talk about 
if you haven't learned your lines and the curtain goes up, I can't bail you out. Or, you know, when it's game day, you're making decisions without me there. And so during structured practice, a lot of times when players would ask me questions, well, where should I go? Where should I be? I'm going, I, I don't know. Where should you be? Where, where was the ball? Where were the thousand different other players? Mm-hmm. You'll never replicate that moment again in time, ever. Mm-hmm. So in that moment in time, you're the one making a decision. So let's walk through it and you tell me what you would do. Um, because if I if I would answer the question every time, then in a game, they don't know what to do. No, no. As soon as you spoon feeding that information too much, it's like the, the reliance and the leaning on it. You know, I'm just going to use squash as an example. When a lot of players lose a point, they instantly look out at the coach or the parents going, what do I do next? I lost this point. What's my solution? It's like, well, like I think Paul Asianti, our mutual friend, he says he only wants to see the back of heads. I love that on the squash court. It's like, you're on there, you know, you're in the trenches, figure it out. Yes, I can be your support network, but this is not the time, the place to start looking at the sidelines, is it? No, not, not at all. And, you know, I, players, I think, and again, are very much an American culture. They're so afraid. The style of coaching here, you've got the images on TV, but, you know, players often are very afraid to make a mistake. So mm-hmm. they're not, they're playing within the bounds of themselves rather than when you're competing at a really high level. You know, it's like skiing, isn't it? It's like you're always teetering on crashing, but it's the mistake isn't made when the mistake happens. The mistake is made when you don't turn around and recover and do something else. And so I will tell my players the same thing. If you turn around and you're like, ah, the ball's right behind you. Just get it back. Get it back. Love that. Like what's important next, that next moment, the kind of the, the stimulus happens, but what's the response to the stimulus? That's what I, I'm always trying to wrestle with players going, yeah, you, you're going to fail thousands of times, but it's only a failure if you do nothing with it. If your reaction exactly. yeah, puts it into that bucket of failure. And one of the things you said, which I just want to maybe pick your brains on, um, you know, with this adult intervention and, you know, coaching feels a very much a transactional thing now rather than a transformational, you know, someone gives you a bit of money, a parent for a private lesson. I'm just talking maybe individual here yeah, yeah. and they expect the result. They expect you to impart the knowledge onto the player. We're actually the most powerful thing you could do is almost step back, let the player figure it out themselves, be there as a guide. And it's such a hard one between the transactional and transformational coaching. Yeah. I think, you know, just kind of reflecting a little bit on, you know, the years of coaching and now, I've got a number of players who are now coaching. And so we have these discussions. The older I got, the less I spoke. And that I think is something is really hard because you want to have a hands-on because you want to be playing yourself. I I wanted to be playing, um, but less actual explain a drill, structure it, but then allow the players and it I became more comfortable with working on the same things for longer mm-hmm. than filling the time to move through a two hour practice. It wasn't about filling the time. It was about doing something through repetition where the players began to go. When you see that light bulb moment and they figured it out, mm. that's the joy of coaching. It's just like, yes. Love but it. I think when I was younger, it was more, I had to fill two hours with stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to, yeah, to to say less, be there, be present, be supportive, but encourage them to work through what it is you're working on. 
Mm, love that. Reminds you of that uh, Bruce Lee quote. What did he say? He said, I don't fear the man that's learned a, a thousand kicks once. I fear the man that's learned one kick a thousand times. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like the repetition discussion there a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. When you can walk on the rice paper, it is time. <laughs> yes. to yeah. yeah, I love that. But then what do you, because I'm always wrestling with this and, and we're obviously talking down a bit of a coaching rabbit hole, which is great. I really love these conversations. Um, where do you get the balance between trying to improve the player's game IQ by maybe open-ended condition games or the kind of closed loop repetition of that same thing. You know, I'm sure it's a continuum, but but where do you start to think about that? Yeah, I think that's really hard because, again, the way the season's structured here where it's a, in feel like it was such a short time. I mean, end of August to, you know, middle of November is your season. Wow. And so you're expecting your players and then there's all kinds of rules around the NCA, what I can and cannot do with contact time with players um, is you're asking your players to be able to put a lot of practice in themselves. And I think, you know, I always loved, I mean, I played squash, I played squash in England and then I played at squash, obviously a lot at Trinity because it's right there. Um, the thing I love about squash is you don't have to go chase a ball anywhere. It's always in the same, it's, <laughs> it's always rebounding. in the same place. <laughs> So it's it's a great, you know, when I was teaching squash as a PE class, it was great with beginners because it, I think it was a sport that you could learn without getting too frustrated. Tennis, the ball's over the fence or, mm -hmm. you know, you lose your ball and that's it. It's done. Um, trying to encourage players to be able to go through a skill that is just a question of repetition until muscle memory allows you to be able to hit a ball consistently the same way a thousand times. Mm -hmm. And that means you've got to break that skill down. So those are things that players can do themselves. You can set up drills where they are just hitting and they're going to, again, yeah, 99 mm -hmm. times it's going to be wrong. But that one time, can you then go, whoa, you heard the sound of the ball on your stick or your racket. It went where you wanted it to, to go. And now step up and do, what did I do, do exactly the same thing again? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what takes years and years and years. Um, yeah. I don't stress about hitting a ball. I don't step up to a ball and go, oh, can I hit it? Can I hit it? Whereas I know some of the players in their mind in a big moment are thinking about, can I hit the ball? Not where can I pass the ball to? Mm -hmm. Um but I know when I step up to hit a golf ball, I'm going, oh, my God, please <laughs> keep it straight. You know, it's it's but I try to translate. I know I can hit a hockey ball. Why can't mm -hmm. I hit the damn golf ball? Um, so creating situations that are very just repetitive time versus. Actually being in the saddle, playing the game mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in, in field hockey where you need so many people to play against in order to have the game, we would play a lot of um, short-sided games, hockey fives, use, we've got this big um, irrigation plastic tubing that you can put along the side of the field to mm -hmm. keep the ball in play. So anything where we could keep the ball alive and not lose the ball to keep the momentum of the energy of that game, it's pretty fast. So you're asking players to make quicker decisions in a smaller space. So when you then take those tubes away, now you've got more space and space is time. Time allows you to execute. 
So when I consciously was trying to make it more difficult for players, I would reduce the space and add more people. Mm. And then when you take people away and add space. So mm. trying to change those confines in order to achieve the end goal, um, mm. you know, going back and forth between those two, um, you know, we would play very often with more players on the field than really should be against our own team. So it felt really overwhelming. Nice. Um, so different strategies to yeah. try to attain that that type of thing. Mm. All those just playing with the parameter of constraints, you know, I love that. And that's, that's again, coaching wisdom and knowledge, you build it up over time. But listen, I really resonate with the golf. I think you and me, if my legs are moving and the ball is moving, I'm fine. If a ball is still and my legs are still, I don't trust it. <laughs> it's so hard. And, you know, and I was that immature person that was like, can I now jog to get my ball? This game is so boring, you know, and realizing, no, it's a whole nother. Yeah. It's an understanding and it's a strategy and then you've got all these different clubs so now you know i'm so too used many to, decisions yeah i'm hitting with one with my one stick and i can do lots of things with one stick but mm. i'm changing the angle of the head and wow i have huge admiration yeah for that play really well because mm. of those different mm. choices and selections and also like maybe obviously dynamic sports of hockey and squash you, sometimes thinking time is you don't have it and that's a luxury actually because you don't have paralysis by analysis at times golf yeah. you got so much time to think in between shots and it just yeah. can get inside your own head massively so i do respect golf psychology big time yeah and i think the fact that you know so many people you know your average person who might not have been a competitive athlete so many people recreationally now play golf um, and there's a lot of pressure for people like when they stop their sport, they're going to play golf. Mm. It is one of the hardest sports ever. Yeah, and, yeah. So, you know, huge amounts of money being spent on a sport that people are really bad at. Um, <laughs> yeah. So know? true. So true. Yeah. yeah. Love that. And then I um, just want to stay with a little thread here. You talked about the season being so short and condensed and, I'm always loving to try and unpack this and, and I'm writing up quite a few deep articles on this. You know, the outcome is super important because the scoreboard's there, these people yeah. in college, but the, as we know, the process, how do we get the athletes to stick to the process? So is there different times of the season you go, okay, we need to get the W's on the board. We need the wins, but we also need to focus in on the process in those key moments. How do you work on that continuum? Yeah, I mean, the structure of sports in this country you know, is very collegiately based, as you know, which, you know, whether I agree or not, it's it's the culture that that is really embedded in American culture. And um, sports are so seasonal here based on television and audiences. And that's where, you know, it's been driven for a very long time. But in the fall where field hockey is, along with soccer, you're asking your athletes you know, to put in the work in the summer when you're not around. So they get their pre-season, you know, they get a pre-season training packet. They do all their conditioning, their physical conditioning. And again, a lot of American teams, I think in the world, you know, I think of the U.S. women's soccer team, they've always been so renowned. They're so physical, they're so fit. And American teams are known for their fitness. But same with U.S. field hockey, yes, they've got great fitness, but what about the actual skill of the sport? Mm, yeah, And that's the part where I was saying to my players, you can get your fitness. I'm not questioning that, but you need to put equal time in 
to being able to have a stick and a ball in your hand every single day. I don't care if you've run five miles every day. Doesn't matter. It's the stick and the ball. And at the end of the day, there are kids who are not in shape, but are much better with a stick and a ball and they're going to beat you. Mm. And it's going to be really frustrating because you think you put the time in. And so trying to get them to understand it's not about just running and the physical but this whole how the ball feels in your hand. Um, so they are expected to do a lot of work on their own while they're not in season. It's really hard to find places to play. Mm -hmm. And I think similarly to squash here, there aren't squash courts everywhere here. Mm -hmm. uh, in the same way in England, you know, a lot of sports centers have squash courts here. It's a very, very sort of niche sport. Mm -hmm. Same way. Field hockey is not played by everybody and the surface trying to find an AstroTurf field, having access to it. Um, if you want to be good at the sport, you've got to work hard to even just find the place to train. Wow. Um, mm. And so doing work on their own takes a certain kind of person because they all, you know, the last, the last loss of the season, which then motivates you for the next year they're all gung-ho then, but as mm. time goes on, I know right now my players, they're like, yeah, we're talking about going out now that the weather's getting better. Have you been out yet? <laughs> you been on the field? Oh, no, we're going to go tomorrow. Yep. You know? <laughs> and so it takes a certain kind of person. And fortunately, unfortunately, there's always a core in your team that will do it, mm -hmm. but there are always outliers. And, you know, for us, it takes 11 people working really well together and you can't win with just six. Yep. So unless everybody's putting in the work, it's so hard. Mm. And it's that's such a, life, right? That's, yep. that's life. Mm. And as a coach, you know, it's the kind of classic case. Are you spending 80% of your time with the players who you need, you're dragging along and actually that 80% of the time should be spent with the players who are like way more into it. It's such a, such a tricky balance because you end up having to motivate and drive the the outliers, as you say. And, and that's just such a hard balance to keep getting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and I've, you know, I, again, I got to a place now with recruiting, you know, I've, I've said, so, some players have said to me, oh, Anne, as a coach, you should yell at us more. I'm like, okay, let's talk about that. It's mm -hmm. like, why? Why would I yell at you? If we lose a game, I never go into the next day's practice thinking that you tried to lose that game. Mm -hmm. So you're asking me to yell at you, put you on the end line, do sprints as punishment where did you try to throw the game? Um, that mindset is completely foreign to me. Um, and I used to do it because I was watching how coaches here did things by screaming, yelling, throwing clipboards. Now, by being fearful of your coach, I think actually is suffocating. And now you're afraid and you're performing less. So I recruited you because you told me you wanted to come and play here. So my job is to get you to outperform where you ever thought you could. Hmm. And even to this day, playing against some of the teams we played, there are teams we beat this past year. We had no business beating, but the element of getting somebody to believe that they are better than they actually are and that they can do something, that's where I want to spend my energy and time on. And you're not going to get that by screaming at somebody, I don't think. Um, 
So there are times where, yes, I've, I was mad for a particular reason, but not because I thought you purposely passed the ball to the wrong person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. I like, and again, yeah, you see the, I suppose um, Hollywood has, has got to blame a little bit, the kind of classic coach with a clipboard and whistle and like slamming oh, yeah. into the ground. And then all of a sudden the team is like victorious and you're like, yeah. oh, come on, like let's, it's probably much more nuanced than that as we know. <laughs> yeah. And I think the big sports here, you know, the classic, the, you know, basketballs uh, are very much that kind of sideline demeanor, th throwing things. Times are changing for sure, but um players see that expect that and so i i think trying to break that mold of if you think you're going to work harder and i'm going to yell at you then hmm. but no. you have to and you also you can't treat everybody the same either some people yeah. do get motivated by that but you have to know your individual players to how and who you can push harder and and how you as a coach approach them because they are not all cookie cutter no, no. And, that, and that, again, that's maybe a thing as a young coach, you maybe fall into that trap a little bit like, right, here's the model that we're going to use people. All of you get on board with what I'm doing. And it's like, whoa, let's take a step back. Like, let, let's get my ego out of this and let's make sure we're being athlete centered in the way. And that's, that's hard because you're having to change your coaching style for different players at different times and different conversations. Um, And just on that thread, you said the word believe or, or you want someone to you know you beat teams because that person believed in themselves above where they thought they could go can you just unpack that for me a little bit you know I, there's no probably one answer but how do you yeah. have those conversations that raise that belief and that confidence that ability in themselves yeah i think i mean i relied a lot on my captains so if you've got really good team leadership and somebody doesn't even need to be a captain they just need to be a leader um, you know, and, and you're developing those people as they come in from first years. I and mean, we would do a lot of work with, um, you know, we'd have them read some books and there are tons of coachy books out there. And honestly, I'm not a big reader of books and now you become it. I think, you know, you can't read a leadership book and then be a leader. So I think you can use some of that material in the right way, but I don't, go overboard on using it um i i meet with the players and i meet with the captains regularly and they're the ones who have to be 100% on board they drive the team it's them it's not me and from the very first meeting of the year i talk about this is our team it's not my team you don't come here to play for me you play for yourself i play for me and if I want to keep playing, I will. But the analogy I use is there can only be one captain of the ship, and that's me. But we need to all agree on what our destination is because I'm piloting this boat. If I arrive at my port and you've all jumped ship, then I obviously was going in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Now, you may tell me along the way that you want to visit this island and that island and our pathway may not be as straight as I want it, but I need to have open conversation that we're on the right course all the time. I might have to correct the steering, but I need to arrive at port with all of you on board to be successful. But then my captains are the ones who, if we're doing conditioning workouts, we typically run these 300 yard sprints up and back 50 yard line and they're hard and they're timed and we'll set the time and I might give them 65 seconds to run these 300s. And I'm like, okay, we're going to do three and they'll do their three. And then I'll look at the captains and I'm like, what do you think? And they, 
And they're like, we can do another one. But getting them to tell me, they're going to do it because I've suggested it. Exactly, but yeah. the buy-in, if it comes from the senior leadership, the other players aren't going to question. Whereas if I'm the one saying, get to the end line, and then what about the last one? Can we do it in 60 seconds? Yes, by this time, the endorphins nice. are flowing. Love that. Um, so loading their workouts in a way it's coming from them. And then there are days where I'll back off because I'm like, I think you're tired. I think you need a break. I think tomorrow, tell me, do you need a day off? And they look at me and their captains are like, oh, we do have a lot of work. I said, then let's take a break tomorrow. Um, and obviously this, it sounds great now. It doesn't always, it's not <laughs> all, is it? But, um, you know, and then on a skill-based thing, and I learned this in physical education college, you know, we'll do a skill-based thing where it's a time-driven incentive. Um, you know, first thing they do, and they're counting repetitions and how many can you do in a certain time. You know, it's like, we're going to be working for 20 seconds. And and so you work for 20 seconds, and then we're like, ah, I think we can do better. And then you give them like 23, 24 seconds the next time. Every single kid puts their hand up that they beat the time. Nice. Now, a little bit disingenuous, I think, maybe, but mm-hmm. they think they can do it in the 20 seconds. So guess what? When we do it again for 20 seconds, they now make 25. And so they beat. And so learning these little tricks, if you like, to get them to believe mm. that they can do these things. Um, and then I'll tell them and they're like, oh, coach, I said, <laughs> yeah, you did it. You did it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. But what I'm hearing you say to, to build your culture is so much of this is about communication, really good communication from you to them, setting the expectations, but not your expectations, the the, the whole team's expectations. And then you're all singing from the same hymn sheet. So I'm assuming yeah. communication is like one of your highest priorities for creating yep. this culture. Yeah, most important. And they, you know, it's like my office door was always open. I said, I plan practice in the morning. If any of you want input and, you know, over the years, some of the really confidently good players have come in and got the marker on the whiteboard. And they're like, we don't like that drill that you do. We we should. And I'll let them scribble on the board. And I'm like, well, let's plan it together. Tell me why, you know, why do you think? And, you know, this is this whole thing is a process together. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like I always say to them, you know, I. I, I was hired as your coach, not a policewoman. You're, we're going to deal with issues where you get into trouble and I will be your number one supporter, but you have to tell me first before I get a phone call from the administration. Um, I will back you 100% as long as you really didn't do whatever they were accusing you of. But there's a, I think trust is, trust is huge. So developing and creating trust so they know that I'm in their corner whatever they're doing in their life um and then communicating that and then just seeing you as a raw person um i tell them i will never ask you to do something with these ridiculous workouts that i would never have done myself or would jump in and try to do now just because i have the whistle hmm. so i think trust communication and compassion are really important hmm. And I suppose it's a bit of a follow-up question, but you've already highlighted this. Um, you know, creating that good team culture. You've had I don't know how many seasons of I think it was two thousand and one. You joined Trinity, but you know, you would have seen some really good teams and maybe not so good teams. Not in results, but I'm talking just about yeah. the overall culture. Um, 
you know, can you expand or think of some stories or think of some examples of like, hey, these were the the kind of the the blueprints for the best team culture. And these were the, the things that didn't go so well in other team cultures, partly maybe just from the athletes, partly maybe you got it a bit wrong. Any thoughts come to mind with that? Yeah, I mean, that first year when I took over at Trinity, they were one and 13 on the season the year before. And so I said to the athletic director, I was like, wow, if I win two games, doubled the averages. And then when I got my evaluations at the end of the year, he couldn't understand. I think we won four games that year or five he couldn't understand why the evaluations were so positive, but we still, in his mind, weren't, you know, we weren't yeah, winning, winning tons of games. And I think that's, again, this culture here puts so much emphasis on winning must equal everybody's happy. And I knew that we didn't necessarily have, you know, the, the talent we had was the talent we had. And so we did lots of other things. So, Obviously, rock climbing is my other passion. I took them all outdoor rock climbing. I took them and we did other activities um, in order to, to just develop a culture where it wasn't just about playing. Um, and some of those players today, I mean, I'm in touch with all of those people. And one of those players who was in that team is just last week, got a brand new job as assistant head of school at a, you know, at a prep school around here that there were some really hard lessons we had to learn because we weren't winning. And so trying to keep them positive, engaged, and just enjoying being with each other while working hard when the outcomes weren't coming and trying to talk a lot about, we put so much pressure on this winning when really we're just, spending two hours a day together playing a sport we love in a world that's really cruel and unkind. And it's just a game, but my entire life is wrapped up in this game and it's incredibly emotional. But at the end of the day, nobody died. Nobody's hungry. Nobody's homeless, put it in perspective, but it's still what we're really focusing on um, and trying to develop that team. And yeah, for the first few early years, it was hard to get kids to buy in to the degree that today's team now has. Right. Um, hmm. and, you know, we've been fortunate through recruiting also bringing in better and better players. And I was very open with, with players saying, you know, you understand my job as a recruiting person. I'm trying to replace you all. That's what recruiting is. I'm trying to find people who are already better than you. Wow. Yeah. And so what, what does that make you feel? And I said, or does it motivate you to say, whoa, I hope that's the thing that makes you go, no, I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going to work harder. So I'm either going to replace you or you've got to work harder. But I, the, the institution is looking to me to bring better people in. And Love I was it. very open about that in a, you know, tongue in cheek way. <laughs> yeah. But you guys want to play with first years that are coming in that are really good, right? And each year we slowly raise the standard of where's the bottom. That mm. bottom's got to come up and that top's got to move higher. Totally. Yeah. Well, a rising tide lifts all ships, doesn't it? I love that using that. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, yeah. I love that. And what you what you said then again, beautifully put about the culture and how you built it and how you use rock climbing and 
you know what? Don't we all remember experiences rather than the wins and losses in our career? And it's like, you know what? Oh, you know, like the again breaking down on the bus on the way to somewhere, or breaking down on the bus. Yeah, <laughs> the arriving in the locker room literally is a shoe closet, and they're shoving you in this terrible locker room. Or your assistant coach orders the pizzas and didn't realize they were individual pan pizzas. And we got four of them. Um, yeah, the, the students, I mean, just spending this week with one of my players in a pretty intense environment and hearing we really didn't talk about wins and losses, but she talked all about the experiences off the, they were all off the field. And a lot of them were, I wasn't even part of it. It was, you've, the coaches and these games are an excuse to give young people a place, a purpose, and a structure with a group of people that will then be their absolute life and soul for the rest of their lives. Mm. And I'm, you know, I get text messages from a, there's a one particular group, and they here's a whole group of them, and they're skiing, and they're in Boston in a bar, and now they're all running the New York Marathon, and these are people who are going to be friends for life because of the struggles that I created on the field. Amazing. Oh, it's kind of goose, goosebump territory. This, I love this. And yeah. as a coach, isn't that our yardstick for success? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, 20 years later, you, you getting someone sending you a WhatsApp of them, like showing them your child or, and yeah. going, wow. And then they've kind of a few of them my squash version is they've all gone and lived in houses together in London. They've all gone for yeah. like, they finished their university, right? Let's go live together in a house together. Yeah. And they, they've just created that. And yeah, for me, if, if we have a glorious season of winning 19 matches and losing one, okay. But if we've created this culture where everyone's a bit selfish and they're out for their own good, maybe that's not the success we're looking for. I, I think that's really powerful. And I think, uh, you know, unfortunately, again, here, coaches are evaluated on your wins and losses. And, you know, the parent culture is very strong here where, you know, working in the institution that Paul and I both work, very, very financially influential parents. And I think probably with you in the squash world, you see, you know, that that same parents who can influence coaches decisions because they can give big gifts to the school, just phone the president when they're not happy that their, their son or daughter isn't playing. And so, you know, sports, as we see it on the television, it's become incredibly complicated to navigate. You have to strip it away down to the pure, here it is pouring rain. You're on the field. The whistle blows. Mm -hmm. Nothing else matters. Um, but in today's culture, it does. And we are now influenced a lot by external factors that as a coach, I think you need to stay true to your values and the best player plays and not always the best player is going to work in combination with others on a team. And so how you select your team, how you address players, you cannot compromise your values because players see right through it. Mm. Yeah, this is well insightful, insightful stuff. Yeah. And I can see why uh if we talk about success, you've created that success over the years. Even just ignoring that scoreboard right now, I think it's yeah, some beautiful words you're putting across. And um one one, maybe one or two other things I want to talk about team and 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 kind of coaching, and then I want to transition a little bit to your personal life and some amazing things you've done. Um, you know, we talked about those, those, those group of people that do that extra work. I'm always keen on 
looking at certain common trends and habits. So we can ignore the outliers for a, a sec, but what habits do you know? What habits do you notice that are common amongst the the high performers or the successful athletes in the years you've worked with them? Yeah, I think you know, especially strength and conditioning has become a you know when I remember when I first came to the U.S. I'd never been exposed to strength and conditioning training, you know, even in physical education college. And I came here in the summer camp and, and women were lifting. And I'm like, whoa, this is wild. And I went home and I started using that old universal machine. <laughs> Didn't really have a clue what you're doing. But the concept of getting stronger rather than just doing running conditioning the athletes that I see buying in very much to the weight room without worrying about, I don't want to get big, that misconception about you're going to turn into a bodybuilder. The ones who embrace, if I get stronger, if I get faster, if I get fitter, this entire package and putting in time to really develop the entire body. And I just, you know, there's part of me now that just wishes I could be that player again now with the knowledge I have and just the facilities and the the advancement in understanding just human training. Um, but those players who embrace their diet, sleep, good study habits, a much more sort of holistic all around approach mm -hmm. in order to to perform at this really, really high level, um, understanding nutrition and fueling your body is something that, you know, we, yeah, you knew a little bit, you knew maybe pasta loading the night before a marathon, but that was about it as college mm -hmm. students playing, you know, we were still at the pub on a Friday night playing a huge game on Saturday, you know, it's <laughs> like those just, just understanding some of those things, I think has those players embrace everything. I love that. And and for me, what I try to get the players to understand is the spillover effect. So, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. So if you are taking care of your, you know, coming off social media before you're going to bed and having a bit of a wind down routine and just taking those like little things that might not seem much, but I talk about it's a drop in a bucket. You know, you keep putting those drips in the bucket. You don't notice individual drips, but you come back a couple of months later, that bucket's getting pretty full. And I think that's, it gets ignored a lot. It's like, right, like, yeah, we're going to, do these crazy reps and matches and, you know, really train hard, but actually we're then eating junk and we're staying up late and, you know, it's getting like the, the, the soft skills, which are for me, arguably the, the kind of the hard skills in a good way. I always say when I, you know, if I'm interviewing somebody rather than just interview them in your office, I'd like to see their car because okay. how somebody keeps their car is often a reflection <laughs> of how, you know, they are in their life. And if the car is tidy and it's organized, because anybody can put on, you know, nice clothes and come into an interview. But I want to see, how do you keep your car? Mm, I and, like that. you know, and it's it's little things that you've picked up over the years that my dad used to keep his car so immaculate. He was so proud. And I used to be like, Dad, why are you spending so much time every Sunday washing the car? Now I get it. You get it. Yeah, I love that. I love it. Now I get it. I don't know if you've heard of that story. I'm again, maybe a, a big Wall Street kind of guy. And, you know, he'd get all these CVs every year from all these amazing Harvard, Harvard Business School and that. 
his interview process, he would purposely change the venue at the last second to some like little cafe down the road. He would have the waiter in on it that the waiter would accidentally mess on the table and spill stuff. And the whole interview was based on this person's reaction to change and, and awkwardness. And if that person got up and started screaming at the waiter and kind of started having a go at them, he didn't get the job. It was all about, it didn't matter how good their CV was. It was like their human skills. I think that's a brilliant way to, yeah. you know, your version of the car is his version of going, yeah, you're in a difficult, awkward situation. And there's this, someone below your station is mucking you around. Yeah. How are you going to deal with this? I think that's incredible. I love that. Yeah. And I mean, I talk a lot to our players. I mean, we have an incredible ground staff, incredible cleaners, support staff and people in roles in the equipment room, washing our uniforms. I tell them that it's, you know, those were the people, honestly, that I was more friendly with at school than other professors, colleagues. They were the people that enabled us to be able to use our facilities, put our uniforms on, be in a clean office every day. And I mean, I think I was taught that at a young age by my parents, but do not treat other people in a way that you do not want to be treated yourself. Um, and that sort of human reaction, um, I think is incredibly important. And I don't care what job it is you do. You all have to be pushing the rock uphill at the same time. Otherwise you're not going to achieve it. Mm, love it. Totally. I don't know if you've read the book legacy. It was written by the all, or about the all blacks um, and, and their cultures about, yeah, sweeping the changing room after their after their kind of yeah. camps. And you saw it recently with um the, the Japan football team that always leave the kind of the locker room crystal yeah. and leave a little gift. And actually, quite interesting, a lot of sports psychologists actually poo-pooed it, which I thought was oh, like, look, this is just pop psychology. And how can you create a proper mental resilience if you're showing a picture of a changing room all clean? But personally, I disagreed. I think that's an, an amazing character yeah. and attitude to have to actually build mental strength and resilience when it really is tough. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole leave no trace in the wilderness. It's, you know, take only pictures, leave only footprints. And um, you should in go out into the wilderness and the wilderness should not know we've been there. Love it. Love it. Well, that moves me beautifully on to some amazing things in your personal life. Um, So you fulfilled your dream of climbing Everest, not once, but twice. <laughs> which I didn't, uh, summit, I didn't summit the first time though. I okay. went, I went, but didn't summit. So that's another whole long podcast story. Probably into itself, Interesting. But, okay. Uh, well, I suppose my question is, yeah, we're like, you know, you mentioned rock climbing, being outside, Um, you know, yes, I'd love to hear about the, the, like the summit the second time, feel free to talk about the non-summit of the first time. Where did this passion spring from and, and, and what, what energy and juices does it give you? Yeah. I mean, and this is where I, I talk about my sort of very schizophrenic life in some respects that, Again, I think 11 must have been a formative time for me because we had a teacher in middle school. I was 11 and one, I think it was around about, it must have been Easter vacation time. She offered a trip to the Lake District when I was in middle school and we spent it was probably a week and a half. We drove from Ferndown in Dorset on the South Coast all the way up to the Lake District, you know, bus with no heat in the whole thing. And we had white canvas, old school tents. <laughs> and we had these tents that were in 
the church had turned into like it had been a one room schoolhouse in the Lake District and the tents were in this, you know, yard of the church. It rained every day. There was a trench that we had down the middle of the tent that the rain would just run underneath through the tent. And, you know, we had literally the sleeping bags that you would put, you know, on the end of your bed if you were chilly. We froze our asses off for 10 days. <laughs> I loved it. And oh, it was one of those experiences where it was boys and girls together. And I think it was at that age where you're still so naively innocent mm. that boys and girls would, there was no separation between at all because we were hiking in the hills with this Scottish guy, Hamish, taking us up into the mountains. We got to do abseiling. We had a rope around our waist to do rock climbing we slept outside in a bivy. We did a mountain rescue. And I just remember going, wow, this is amazing. This is amazing. And then at 16, I worked at a sports center uh, as a lifeguard and a, an attendant in the sports center. And they had built a brick in, brick out climbing wall in the new sports hall. Um, and I, I met these four guys that were on the climbing wall. And then through college first year outdoor experience introduction to rock climbing so i connected with these guys and start every summer for my four years in college i started climbing with them and then we went down to the sea cliffs in dorset and we'd sleep in the caves at night we'd climb all day and then i did outdoor education with nice. pe as a secondary and uh got into you know going up to the lake district in north wales and so I was playing field hockey and I was doing this. So, you know, mm -hmm. when I wasn't in season, I got an opportunity to kind of do some of this and it's always sort of been there. Mm -hmm. um, and and, so and just, I just on that, I'm just going to, again, you can link this into the Everest in a second, but two quick questions. Like what, what was it? You might not know exactly what it was. And it sounds like there was an, a massive, a massive love and an intrinsic motivation. And then kind of my kind of follow-up is how did you, you know, when things aren't going so well and you had to push and it was difficult and hard, did you draw on certain things? Was it the environments that that able to give make you as motivated to complete these hard things? Yeah, I, I don't know what it is about me, but it seems like the harder and more miserable it is, the more <laughs> it's like I, I thrive or I just, you know, when it's pouring with rain when you're coaching, I think now you have the right clothing to wear getting to the place where you know it's going to stop, you know it's going to be better, and having this just like, oh, I survived that, um, just a huge pride in surviving things that are difficult. I don't know where that's come from. Sounds um, very, very stoic, stoic wisdom yeah. in there somewhere, just like exposing yeah. yourself to the and, harshness. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've just always enjoyed things that were really hard physical challenges. Um, and just mentally being able to get into a place where you know it's going to not last forever it's like running that marathon it's it's going to stop and you know it's going to stop sooner if you run a bit faster um but being able to mentally get to a place where you're not hating every moment of it embracing the hard yeah i mean i don't think i'm any expert at it but I think I've got a high tolerance for things that are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, spending a week just sleeping in a tent just now, my friends, 
you know, who are my age, are like, are you kidding me? We want to go to an Airbnb <laughs> and have a, you know, a nice fire pit. But um, yeah, I just, just, I've always enjoyed that. And I don't know, I don't know where that came from. My mom is really strong. My grandmother was an incredibly strong woman also. And so um, whether that's that kind of, British resolve I don't know mm, possibly yeah that's incredible so and and yeah so um, maybe transitioning to to Everest so completed it I'm sure there were some difficult dark times how did the motivation the drive feel free yeah. to unpack as much of that story as you want yeah so 2004 I went with a team from Connecticut and again there was a, there's a book called High Crimes written about that expedition because mm. it literally became so fraught with so many crazy things um and and really you know I, I didn't summit the leader of our team um at the time he's a Romanian guy um and I got involved in this project through a friend of mine who I climb with who's a photojournalist and so my friend Mike was was like sending images and sending live stories back to the newspaper here in the states and uh this character George turned out to be really very unsavory. And mm. as Mike was sending more and more stories back and George was hearing that they were getting printed, he was getting more volatile on the mountain and threatened to throw Mike's tent off the mountain. I was obviously sharing a tent with Mike, which then involved me. Oh, and so it became physically, we felt unsafe being there with him there's a lot more convoluted part of this, but it was obvious that one, just the whole team, they made a choice. There were some of the people who I considered my friends before were so driven by wanting to stand on the summit that they turned their back on Mike and I in order to go with George to summit the highest mountain in the world at all costs to their human connection. Hmm. At that point, I definitely, I definitely had some high altitude, like I had a cough. I wasn't a hundred percent. Mike wasn't a hundred percent. We didn't feel safe and our friends chose to continue to climb. And so Mike and I made the really difficult decision at about 27,000 feet that one, we don't feel safe physically. I wasn't a hundred percent. And I am not going to climb the mountain this way. This is not how I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And we turned around and that was probably the hardest decision in my life was to wow. turn around, not knowing if I'd ever get this opportunity. It's hugely expensive, hugely time consuming. I've got to get time off work. Mm -hmm. So we turned around, we were devastated. Mm -hmm. They, four of them did summit. Um, one of, one of the people I still have to work with on a nonprofit board today but after we returned, I, I basically said, I will never climb with you again. I will never tie into a rope with you again. Wow. Uh, you chose to do something and you put your friends' lives in jeopardy after we were threatened. And for me and in my life, and I don't want to sound righteous here, that mm. moment was so clarifying of things that are wrong and right that there's been other experiences I've had more recently where if something is just wrong and so obviously wrong, you have to take a stance on it. You have to. Mm -hmm. And that to me was my moment in my life that I just saw, I will not stand on Everest and pretend everything is great when 
this individual is so so awful and is threatening to threatening mike's life basically wow so i got a chance to go back in 2006 also with mike who is now doing the research for this book um so i got to go back with a completely different organization much better organized better food better people a team that 100 supportive people put their food on the table they shared and they were there to support you in a way that hadn't been in 2004 and i needed to rewrite this whole memory in my mind because i had probably ptsd for about 10 years through this mm, whole thing sure um and managed to summit on may the 25th with there were 12 of us that started uh six of us were successful unfortunately mike was not um the day we summited it was beautiful blue sky we spent 50 minutes on the summit uh, 2004, it was complete whiteout. They didn't see anything. Um, and so I was able to kind of rewrite this picture in my mind of this is what it should look like. And this is horribly what it shouldn't look like. And mm. just making me realize how incredibly important one, stick to your moral values and how important good human beings really are. Um, and, you know, when I do presentations and lectures, I will focus on the 2006 because I don't want to focus on the negatives. You can mm -hmm. learn your lessons from them, but I can't dwell there. I, it affected me too much at the time. Um, and so, yeah, it was such a crazy story. But if anybody is interested, high crimes, um, Michael Codis, it's a pretty fascinating story. Well, yeah, I think that's going to be on my Kindle pretty soon. That sounds incredible. Yeah. And and thank you for kind of unpacking that. I'm sure there's so many more nuances, but that's a great, great book recommendation as a signpost for anyone who's really interested in, you know, you bring it to life wonderfully. You're painting these amazing pictures. And uh, again, what, what did it feel like on that top there? Again, was it like, uh, you know, obviously the human emotion and that that view, but, you know, what, what were the first reflective thoughts when you got there? I think what was really the year that we you know when we climbed um again this this character was back on the mountain because he went every year so i had to deal with him being wow. back with his sherpa wife and running into him um and i managed to avoid them most of the time and then i was crawling out of my tent at the north Col, and him and his wife went by and he spat at me and so i was like okay we've managed to avoid this let's just keep focused um getting to the higher parts of the mountain where you literally are walking like one step every six to 10 seconds. Cause I time somebody watching them. You physically cannot go faster. And in your brain, you're trying so hard. Um, and then also there was a 2006 is when there was a British climber called David Sharp, who was climbing kind of on his own, um, unsupported, went for the summit, sat down, didn't get back up again. People tried to get him to come down with him and he didn't, and he he died in place. So what? David Sharp was sitting on this bench along with um, an Indian climber who's famously known as Green Boots. Green Boots has been sitting in the same place for 10 years. David Sharp is sitting 10 yards away from him. And, you know, at about 4.30 in the morning, the sun's just beginning to crest and you're on your own. You've got your head down. You've got your oxygen mask on. It's dark. It's dark in your mind. 
and I come across these legs that you you physically don't step over, but they're right next to you. And the one of our teammates behind me suddenly was like, whoa, let out this noise. And it kind of brought me back to like, oh my God, that's David Sharp. And then this is Green Boots. And it just sort of, we're on our way up and here are these two people. David Sharp died 10 days before. The Indian climber died 10 years before. And here you are in this dark place being like, I have to keep focusing on what I'm doing. And so, you know, we saw other climbers that had perished during that time. And you have to keep this kind of real locked in the vault steel. Your emotions have got to stay away right now because mm. you have to get to the top, but you also have to get back down. Um, mm. And so, you know, we, we summited and it was a beautiful day, like I said, and we were at the end of May because we'd acclimatized a little bit differently. Um, so a lot of teams had already summited. So we pretty much had the summit to ourselves, which was incredible. There was no huge line. And then um, again, we encountered on the way back down another climber who was in trouble and distress. Um, and we got held up going down the Chinese ladder because we climbed it from the north side, the Tibet Chinese side. We didn't go through the Kumba Weissfall because okay. the permit's cheaper from that side and you know, don't have a lot of money here. So um we got stuck behind a team trying to get um, a climber down um, who was losing his sight with altitude. He had a condition where he knew he would get altitude blindness and um, was raising money for that research. But his his guide had falsely claimed more experience than he had, and his guide didn't turn him around sooner. And he died right there with us, and the guide left him. So we're now navigating. One of our teammates actually gave him an injection of a drug called dexamethasone to try to just get him to be able to walk. Um, his name was Thomas Weber, a German climber, and he collapsed at the base of the Chinese ladder and we couldn't do anything. We had to, we had to leave him there. And at the same time, you're wrapped up in, I need to get down because I'm still above 28,000 feet. And, you know, the death zone, as they say. Um, and so we continued on, got to our high camp and we couldn't stay there because if you sleep there, you often don't wake up. So wow. we had to pick up some of our stuff and continue on down. And then the whole time it's in your head, what you've seen, yay, you've been on the summit. I've seen dead people. I've had someone die in front of me. What You just... Cool have to like switch that all off mm. until you can like get back to advanced base camp, which we did the following day. Um, and then I took about two days trying to just eat and drink because you've lost your appetite. Your system is shutting down and we had to walk 12 miles back to base camp. And I, I took an extra day there than some other people because I was like I'm not going down until I'm peeing and I've hydrated and I can actually stomach some food hmm. and I just remember putting my iPod in and looking up and the sun shining and you two beautiful day came on hmm. <laughs> and I burst into tears and lost it and that's when I think for me the emotion of just like I can't really put into words just like overwhelming 
high and low at the same time and not knowing how to feel during that moment. It was, mm -hmm. I just want to get down. I want to get to lower altitudes and I want to be able to eat and sleep. And it's just this culmination of all this emotions kind of came overwhelmingly as I started my hike down. Mm. Wow, that is incredible. Thank you again, once again, for unpacking that, just sitting here, absorbing, getting goosebumps as, you, as you're speaking about that. And first thing that came to my mind, you know, when, when you know, you have an experience like this, nothing ever close in my life, but, you know, like, like you, like when the small stuff, the stuff that you sweat back on the ground, you're kind of going, really, is it that important? Is that argument you're having with this non-entity about this thing that doesn't really even matter? You know, do you ever kind of use that experience on the mountain to kind of go, does it really matter what this is right now? Yeah. And I'm, I think even last week being on the canoe trip and one of my players was on that trip, which was amazing to have her there. And it doesn't take very long before all you're talking about is food and whether you've been to the bathroom <laughs> okay. and, and our team, those are your basic, basic things. If you're not if you're not pooing and you're not eating, life stops and it doesn't take long for a group to be like, well, what's for dinner? Is there any more food? Or what's well, where's where's the toilet tent set up? And do we have you get stripped back of everything and it becomes basic functioning in life? Hmm. And you know, is your tent waterproof? So food, shelter, those are your absolute most important things and the rest of it doesn't matter a lick at all yeah yeah and yeah good good to keep that to hand when the the small things are becoming the big things very quickly isn't it and just on my own personal i, I went on a five-day silent meditation retreat about three or four weeks ago and it was yeah incredible i'm going again every year at least um but it just it was kind of like wow you know what the things that you think are important you come back and you shake it up a little bit it's like yeah it gives you that zoomed out perspective Incredible. Five days silence for five days. It was it, it ended up being about three and a half days because you arrive on the Monday afternoon, you talk, then they set the rules and then they lift the silence um about just before midday on the Friday. But it's about six and a half, seven hours of meditation a day, um, ranging from guided to silent to walking meditation. And that was incredible because they teach you kind of like it's kind of heel, midfoot, ball, toe. Then you lift your heel off and you basically walk you about 20 meters in about 30 minutes. It's incredible. Yeah. And you really ground yourself. Um, but it was, it was an unbelievable, I, I, I personally love meditation and journaling. I do quite a lot of it, but this was a, a, a deeper level and yeah, the insights and the people I thought about and how I came back from it very much going, okay, like, you know, th things have changed quite quickly in the last few weeks in a real good way, because I had the clarity, there was no distractions and that silence is, 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 I can see how people get addicted to it because it is, it's very, very yeah. blissful. And, and, you know, you, you can really be with yourself at that point. And I think for me, you know, last week in a canoe, walking up a mountain, you spend most of that time not in conversation. You're in nature and the, in nature for me, you're in your own head. There's an awful lot of conversations going on up here that I think translate back into sport um, and being with yourself and being okay with yourself, with those emotions and feelings and how you process them and where you take them from there. Because you spend hours walking uphill, hours and hours, and it's very, it can be very lonely 
or it can be very insightful. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I'd, yeah, again, with the right attitude and mindset, the insightful probably kicks in a little bit more. So yeah, I love that. Um, listen, and we've had a beautiful conversation. It feels like we could probably go for another hour on so many topics and I love that, but I think a, a, a real cool way to maybe wrap this up. Um, you said you've got some paper on your desk there. You're, you're about to sign. Um, yep. The retirement is officially kicking in. Sounds like you've got a very busy period coming up, which is incredible. Do you want to just um, kind of leave us with what you are going to be getting on with now? Yeah, it's kind of weird because, you know, I feel I still feel like the same little girl that was 11 inside and I still am trying really hard, you know, running, playing, playing hard. Um, and so I think when people think about retirement and they have this concept of, you know, you're going to just yeah go play golf and have a cocktail in the afternoon where I don't even know where when I had time to go to work right now, to be honest with you, because. I'm still working as a rock climbing and ice climbing instructor. I'm going to be working with a woman next week um, for a whole week to prepare her to go trekking in the Himalayas. And so my passion is always helping other people share in the things I love. So I want to still feel relevant and I want to feel like I'm still needed in some ways. Um, but yes, I've got my own personal going going to the Dolomites in July for a rock climbing trip, maybe a Mount Hood trip. There's all kinds of like fun outdoor adventures that are being planned and are on the horizon. Um, and yeah, just really looking forward to, to taking people along on that journey with me um, while selling a house, packing up, having to do some real adult stuff, which I'm not really good at. So uh, <laughs> yeah, figuring out all of the adult parts of this is something that, uh, the kid and the playing is easy. The adult Brilliant. life thing is really, really hard. Well, um, maybe this is your your stoic version of, you know, you being out in the wild and all the difficult uh, things that normal people <laughs> would like feel struggle with. Maybe the kind of adult stuff is where you might have to dig in a bit. Um, yeah, I totally dig in for sure. But yeah. I really appreciated sharing my story this morning. Thank uh, you. And well, again, I, I, you know, I was just thinking, you know, couple of years down the line when you had a few more adventures, I think we need to come back and talk about those as well and just kind of reflect on this. But listen, I feel absolutely honored to be able to have the chat with you at this time as well. Such an incredible transition in your life. And, and you know, we've got a really cool recording. Here. I'm sure everyone that's listened to this point has sat and absorbed all this amazing knowledge as a coach and a human being. And then all of your incredible stories about on the mountain and what you what you're getting up to now in life. So, um, and you've been an absolute superstar. I've literally sat here and just enjoyed this massively. So, all the best with the next little chapter of your life. Um, I would love to keep in touch if that's okay. I think there's so many cool things we can keep chatting about. But thank you so much for today. Thank you.